I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Elise Kovic. And this is the Grok Science Show. And for our show, we have Dr. Martin Novak talking to us today about evolutionary biology. So you're going to stay tuned for all that, plus the Grokatron 5000 is coming right up here on the Grok Science Show. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, the natural world is generally portrayed as a dog-eat-dog environment, red tooth and claw, where competition fuels the evolution and everyone and the emergence of new species and abilities is generally determined by this competition. But is this really the case? How does cooperation play a role in nature? Join us today to discuss this issue with Professor Martin Nowak. Professor Nowak is the director of the Program for Evolutionary Dynamics at Harvard University. He's author of over 300 scientific publications, including several in Nature and Science, and he's penned the new book, Super Cooperators, The Mathematics of Evolution, Altruism, and Human Behavior. And Professor Nowak, we want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Hello, it's great to be here. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and this is really a great book, Super Cooperators, which you talk about the mathematics of evolution and altruism. I'm curious, though, why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, it's somehow it's a summary of my work over the last 20 years. So there, there comes a point in the, in, the, in the life of every scientist where you want to write it up, and you want to write it up such that the general audience can actually read it. But I also had several occasions where I gave talks, for example, one in the Harvard Museum of Natural History, and then people came to me and said that your message is one that should be heard in America, and you should really write a book about this. And so that's what I wanted to do. Well, it does have a lot of social implications, especially with regards to cooperation and how it plays a role in society. But uh, really, the book uh, talks largely about why this is uh, prevalent in, in nature. Is cooperation really a fundamental organizing feature of biological systems? Yeah, in this book, I want to argue that the basic ingredients of the evolutionary process that we know um, are mutation and selection. But with mutation and selection alone, you actually don't get construction. You are kind of stuck on a simple level of organization. So, for example, you can explain how bacteria develop antibiotics resistance, but you can't really explain how the first cell comes into being, or you can't really explain how you get a multicellular organisms. organism. You need something else, and this other ingredient that, that you need is cooperation, and therefore in this book I call cooperation something like the master architect of the evolutionary process created quite a stir recently in a 2010 paper uh, which your co-authors E.O. Wilson and Karina Tamarath talked about really uh, cooperation really was driving evolution rather than the other way around. So the, the controversial paper is actually only on one, on one aspect of cooperation. And this is a particular aspect of cooperation which is often evoked to explain the emergence of social insects. And Ed Wilson is somebody who has studied social insects for more than 60 years of his very successful career at Harvard, and he has um, produced many important insights into, into ecology and natural history and evolution of ants and other insects. And together we 
examined this literature and we argued that the dominant theory that was uh, in place to explain the emergence of eusociality is actually not needed or not successful in order to explain this phenomenon. So in order to explain how sterile worker ants come into existence, uh, why we have ant colonies, why we have colonies of bees, um, all we need is standard natural selection. This is what we argued in this paper together with a precise mathematical and biological analysis of the situation thereby overthrowing the dominant theory that was in place for 40 years, which was the so-called inclusive fitness theory. And, and that, that has led to the controversy. I see. And uh, again, the inclusive fitness theory is this idea that cooperative behavior just selects for genes. In no, you can't really put it in such easy terms. So inclusive fitness is a very complicated construct where individuals not only care about their own offspring, but they also care about the offspring of related individuals. And that is actually not wrong. So that is a correct statement. The statement would be, I can put my genes into the next generation either by reproducing myself or helping my brothers or sisters reproduce. This is a correct statement. But exactly how we calculate this evolutionary scenario, this is really where the controversy is. So the controversy is really on the ground of a mathematical description of evolution, where we show that the inclusive fitness contract, a construct, formulated in precise mathematical terms, does not hold in the majority of situations, but in no situations is it actually required to explain evolution. So a student of evolutionary biology could never come into the embarrassing situation of having to calculate inclusive fitness. It is just not needed. Standard natural selection acting on the gene is always sufficient to explain evolution. Well, this really would cause quite a controversy since it's, uh, as you mentioned, it's sort of a wide-held view for almost 40 years. How's the community reacting to it? Yeah, the community is kind of up in arms and is like writing letters protesting against our paper. And one letter has received more than 100 signatures. But all of these letters somehow use the arguments that have been made for a very long time in the defense of this theory, but do not really engage us on the new results that we have produced in our paper. They kind of aim to sidestep what we actually explain in the paper. And no actual scientific counter-argument to what we have proven in the paper mathematically has been proposed. I see. And so has no one ever attempted to do such a calculation of inclusive fitness before? Or have the calculations been... Uh, it is very interesting. So the theory has inspired empiricists to do very important work. And this is not what I want to challenge. So the theory has told empiricists to go out in the field and think about benefit and costs and relatedness. And this is fine. And this is a great thing to do. But the theory has not provided an exact mathematical description of this scenario. So therefore, the experimentalists couldn't actually make precise quantitative tests of precise mathematical models because they don't exist. Because, and the reason why they don't exist is because inclusive fitness is such a complicated thing to calculate that nobody could actually calculate it correctly. So you can't make a real mathematical description of a biological situation using the inclusive fitness theory. You have to use something which we call evolutionary game theory or population genetics to get a precise prediction, which you could then test in a quantitative fashion. I see. So then the approach mathematically is just untenable. 
In the old theory, yeah. In the old theory, you only have something like a heuristic. You have a rule of thumb. You might think about the situation in a certain way, but you never know of what you are doing is actually precisely correct or is more or less just telling certain stories that are plausible. Uh, well, maybe we could get to the more general questions that you raise in the book of, of cooperativity in general and super cooperativity. Uh, you start the book with a description that's kind of well known in economics, the prisoner's dilemma. But I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you could maybe start by explaining that. Yeah, so in the, in the book, I use game theory, and game theory is a field of uh, mathematics that was invented by the Hungarian genius uh, John von Neumann, collaborating with an Austrian economist, Oskar Morgenstern, in Princeton. And that is, a, is an approach to study strategic and economic decisions of people. And in that field of mathematics, which became very successful and very important in economics and is like the backbone of, of, of microeconomic theory, uh, many games are being studied. And one of the most important games out there, which was not invented by von Neumann, but it came later, is the so-called prisoner's dilemma. And in the prisoner's dilemma, you have two people, and these people have a choice between cooperation and defection. And if we both cooperate, we get more points. We call this payoff in this mathematical jargon of the field. We get a higher payoff than if we both defect. But if you defect and I cooperate, then you get the highest payoff in the game and I get the lowest payoff in the game. So if you think this through or if you write it down on a piece of paper with actual numerical examples, you realize that no matter what I do, it is better for you to defect. So if you assume I cooperate, then you get a higher payoff, you get more points if you defect with me than if you cooperate with me. And if you assume I defect, the same is true, you get more payoff for defecting than for cooperating. And therefore, no matter what you assume I might be doing, it's better for you to defect. And if I analyze the game in the same rational way, we end up defecting. And now we realize we could have had a higher income, we could have earned more points, if we had both cooperated, but there was no rational incentive to cooperate, and that is the, the, the dilemma. Therefore, it's called a dilemma. Mm. So by cooperating, they could have had a mutually better outcome, but in fact, the individual outcomes uh, wind up driving both to... Uh, yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So the Nash equilibrium of the game is to defect, uh, but what would be better for both of them or better for the community would be cooperation, and the big question is how do we get cooperation? Right, right. So that's kind of the broader question. So everyone's sort of out for their own self-interest. How do we solve the prisoner's dilemma and wind up with a group cooperation to a better outcome. Yes, in the, in the book I propose five mechanisms to solve the prisoner's dilemma. And the first one is direct reciprocity, which has been studied for, for a long time, for 40 years approximately. And this direct reciprocity is the idea that I, we have repeated interactions and I cooperate with you now. And that's a risk, but I might be lucky and I might therefore induce you to cooperate with me in the next round. So the idea is I help you and you help me. And so in this repeated game, there's a possibility to find cooperation. Because if I defect now, I could make a short-term payoff, but I destroy a productive cooperation that we might have otherwise had over subsequent rounds. So direct reciprocity is one of the most important mechanisms that lead to cooperation among people. We have repeated interactions, and in these repeated interactions, we learn how to cooperate with each other. And another mechanism which I describe is indirect reciprocity. And indirect reciprocity is the idea that I help you even though it may not be that we have another interaction. And the reason is 
I help you in a context where others uh, will find out about what I have done. So I'm keen on maintaining the reputation of a helpful individual, such that others realize I am somebody with whom you can make good deals, you can have good productive interaction with me. So that's the idea of indirect reciprocity. And for human cooperation, that is actually the most important mechanism because it's the most widespread of all the mechanisms. And it really explains why we help in situations where we do not expect direct repetition between people. And then I discussed three other mechanisms. One is spatial selection, and spatial selection is the idea that neighbors help each other, which is a very natural phenomenon. Group selection is the idea that you have competition between groups, and if a group is very cooperative and another group is very defective internally, you know, then the group that learns how to cooperate, where the people cooperate with each other, they can actually win, they can outcompete the less cooperative groups. And the last mechanism is the one that we discussed in context of the controversy, and this is a valid mechanism if properly formulated. It's kin selection, and the idea is that I help close genetic relatives. So this would be the idea of nepotism, essentially. So it sounds like the, the final three are sort of a larger description of kind of reciprocity that exists among individuals, but rather among groups. So I, I draw a sharp distinction between spatial selection and group selection. For group selection, you really need a competition on two levels. So you need a selection to act on individuals within the group, and you need selection to act in a competition between groups. So for example, there could be two companies or two departments in a university, and they compete with each other. And then if one company manages to establish a high level of cooperation among its employees, it could be that this is a more productive company than the other company with whom the, the competition occurs. So group selection and spatial selection and kin selection are distinct formula um, mechanisms if you think about them very carefully. So how does this then really play into how basically biological systems evolve and are, are structured and really in your book even go down to how systems within an organism actually uh, evolve? Yes, so I use these five mechanisms then to describe how life on Earth originated and evolved. And I begin at the beginning, as I talk about pre-life, and for me pre-life is that kind of biology or sort of chemistry biology that comes before we have reproduction. So reproduction is for me the beginning of life where natural selection occurs, and pre-life is some aspect of natural selection and some aspect of prevolution that comes prior to, to reproduction. And I use these mechanisms then to argue that you have cooperation already there at the origin of life because replicating molecules or molecules that contribute sort of to an overall biological chemistry help each other in a certain sense. And then they become integrated in cells. We talk there about protocells. And in a protocell, again, you have this aspect of cooperation where the RNA that might be in there uh, might help the cell reproduce and the RNA molecules help each other reproduce. So cooperation is a fundamental aspect that is needed to explain the evolution of the first cell. And then once you have cells, the next step would be how to go to multicellular organisms. And again, in multicellular organisms, we observe a certain kind of cooperation where cells do not just divide like crazy, but they divide only when it is of benefit for the overall organism. 
And an interesting topic that we also discuss in the book is, is the breakdown of cooperation in multicellular organisms is what leads to cancer. And so here mutations, receive, mutations in cells destroy the cooperative program and lead them back to the selfish program of just replication at the expense of killing the organism in which such mutations occur. And then we talk about how cooperation gives rise to complex insect societies and how it gives rise to human society with the key aspect there being the evolution of human language. So all the way from uh, the most fundamental of, of chemical systems to uh, the interactions of organisms. Uh, yes, yes, I find, uh, find it very beautiful that evolution is the organizing principle uh, that explains how, how life uh, unfolds. Uh, isn't it somewhat surprising that at the fundamental level, more organized systems, they're entropically less favored, so energetically not as likely to occur. Why is it then that cooperation should drive us? Yeah, the living system always needs to draw on energy to fight against the, the, the threatening entropy uh, destruction. So all living systems require a constant input of energy into the system. And so that starts with the photosynthesis, where the energy comes from the sun, and then photosynthesis can be used to build up the organic molecules that can then be used by other systems. The interesting thing, of my perspective, is that evolution is not only competition, it is also cooperation. So it is also uh, helping each other and not just fighting each other. Right. So in your book, you really then talk about how all this kind of evolves and, and creates the, the multifaceted aspects of our own human society. The, the evolution of language, for example, you argued is one such example of, of this sort of super cooperation. So I, I use the term super cooperators for organisms that can draw on all five mechanisms for the evolution of cooperation. And large-scale indirect reciprocity is only possible because of human language, because we can talk about each other's actions and each other's reputation. And a friend of mine here at Harvard, David Haig, put this very nicely. He said, for direct reciprocity, you need a face. For indirect reciprocity, you need a name. So for indirect reciprocity, we need to have the ability to talk about each other. And so as much as we know about animal communication, that doesn't seem to be the case there. And so the coevolution of indirect reciprocity and human language really is what led to us. This is what I, what I like to argue. I also want to say that uh, a beautiful result described in the book is that winning strategies of cooperation have to be generous, hopeful, and forgiving. But yet in the book you also argue for a need for punishment, uh, bad behavior as well. Yeah, many people think that punishment can be very useful because it can kind of force people to cooperate or people cooperate with each other under the threat of punishment. Um, but I'm somewhat skeptical of this perspective because punishment itself is costly and can then, can, uh, well, on one hand costly and on the other hand destructive. So it costs somebody for the person who punishes, and it costs even more if it's done effectively for the person who receives the punishment. And that can be used for many aspects, not only cooperation. And I would argue that in practice, most uh, applications of force uh, by people are actually destructive uh, and are used in order to promote self-interest and to maintain hierarchy and to keep others down or to defend property or to defend unfair claims. And therefore, I think 
punishment is really a mechanism that can lead to productive cooperation. And um, if you think through it very carefully, often uh, cooperation, real cooperation, is actually not using punishment. We could close with what really are lessons then to take from this notion of cooperation, super cooperation, in terms of how we sort of structure our society or policies or, or interactions with other people? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that uh, we want to have structures or institutions that allow people to cooperate with each other. And these are, in the, in, in, these are institutions that have, for example, the possibility to associate the actions of people with reputation. So what people do and how they interact with others or what companies do and how environmentally conscious companies operate is something that uh, should actually be openly accessible to people. So people should know about the reputation of other individuals, politicians, uh, or celebrities, or, but also companies, and then might, might make choices according to this um, to this information. Well, I think it's certainly a, a good advice. So, curious, you just have any sort of other final words regarding your book, Super Cooperators? Yeah, one message that is also in the book is that people are often overly competitive. So, like the winning strategy realizes that in any one interaction, it is not always necessary to demand 51% of the share. So very often it is actually better to settle for slightly less, but then have good interactions with a large number of people. We are definitely out of time at the moment, but we would just again like to mention your new book is called Super Cooperators, The Mathematics of Evolution, Altruism, and uh, Human Behavior. Uh, Professor Nowak, I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us today on the Grok Science Show, and uh, best of luck with with the book. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Well, this has been the Grok Science Show. Uh, I've been your host, Charles Lee. And I've been and still am <laughs> Elise Kovic. Yes, indeed. Hopefully we'll be back. I, I'm going to take a brief Grok's hiatus. You know, uh, we won't pry into the reasons why, but you're, you're abandoning Team Grox. I am abandoning Team Grox for a short while. For a short bit. And we'll be back due to career pressures. <laughs> I think it's just a sign that you need to change your career. I agree with you. I do agree with you. But until I get paid a lot of money for doing the Grok Science Show, I have to, uh, you have don't to pay do, the rent. You don't do this show for money. It's for the love. I know. I'm running out of love. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm looking for money. Sorry, right. Mick. I know that disappoints you, Mick. Mick. Uh, we'll ask Mick. Mick, why don't you pay to keep Elise on the air? <laughs> why don't we, Mick, organize a fundraiser? Right. How, how about that? We'll, we'll, we'll do the uh, Keep Elise on the uh, Grok Science Show fundraiser. Yeah, <laughs> there could be a PayPal link on the website. Which, by the way, if everyone goes to groks.net, Charles did an amazing job with the new website. I mean, it's it's really, really impressive and gorgeous. I, I wept. <laughs> I wept at its beauty still crying um anyway everybody i heart you lots i will miss you for a while and we'll be back once things are in order and um thanks again for listening to the grok science show um happy may indeed and happy may to everyone else out there uh, we're on the web www.grox.net facebook and twitter have a great afternoon